Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. For your perfect workspace, living space or hideaway, timberliving.ie. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by Timber Living Log Cabins. Open your mind to a new way of living. timberliving.ie. Good morning, you're very welcome to the show. Uh, there's no great grand unified theory of what's exercising the papers today. The Sunday Times is leading with uh, Kinahan Cartel launders millions via film industry. The Post is leading with uh, Irish phantom exports surge to 134 billion. So goods produced outside Ireland made up 38% of our exports last year. They have a story on the bottom of the page that I think will will kind of um, irritate a lot more people. Government to consider radical new strategies to reduce car use. So there's a memo uh, on Tuesday, Eamon Ryan. Eamon Ryan's bringing a lot of memos on Tuesday. But they talk about uh, the NTA, the kind of measures they're suggesting. A 400% increase in parking charges on 2016 levels. A 10 euro daily charge for driving into cities. Uh, and a 20 kilometre per hour reduction on all national road speed limits. So it's like, get get the car out of Irish life. Uh, the Sunday Independent um, is leading with lockdown still taking a toll on our children. And that's it's, it's kind of a broader story, but uh, based in a poll they have, and they also have, in, according to that poll, uh, there's been a bounce for the Social Democrats since uh, Holly Cairns became the leader. The Irish Mail on Sunday... Parents Council on Fit for Purpose scathing report raises concerns over spending and um, all the, the tabloids are leading with um, prison stories. The Sun has Daniel Murta, who murdered Nadine Lott, is apparently looking to be moved to Wheatfield Prison to be nearer his mother. The Sunday World has Jim Mansfield being released from prison and the Mirror has a story about Sanjeev Chadha that you will remember that father who killed his two young boys and his life in prison. Now, our panel today, Sinead O'Carroll is the editor at the journal.ie. Professor Pete Lunn is a behavioural economist with the ESRI. Alice Leahy is director of services at the Alice Leahy Trust. And Sean Keyes is a financial correspondent at The Currency. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Morning. Um, Sinead, why don't we start with um, legalising drugs? So you picked... Well, we don't know. (laughs) Our powers do not extend that far yet. Uh, You picked two pieces. Uh, Louise O'Neill in the Sunday Times, the war on drugs won't be one until they're legal. And then Oliver Hodges, uh, also in the Sunday Times, talking about lobbying goes to pot ahead of drug discussions. So this... This is actually kind of is moving. Yeah, it's yeah. moving. We're going to have a citizens assembly to talk about it. But I just thought the two pieces kind of framed how um, much of a debate it's going to to bring up that I think there's a consensus that we do want a health led approach in Ireland to mm. drug taking and drug policy. Um, but within that, there's there's a lot of nuance to be discussed. And even in Louise O'Neill's piece, she talks quite boldly. She says if they should be legalised, what she actually means is decriminalised and she's talking about cannabis but she was also saying that in the last week and the Sunday papers all have stories about children eating uh, cannabis jellies and the kind of hysteria that comes along with with that Is it Um, hysteria? Three children were hospitalised eating uh, cannabis jellies that are seem to be are being passed around among young people and they're unregulated and we don't know what's in them Yeah so O'Neill's point is Is that hysteria? O'Neill's point is that there is a lot of um, talk about it as if and then bringing together all talk about drugs in, in kind of a moralistic tone um, compared to, say, when uh, people talk about drugs and alcohol. But then she goes on to say that we, you know, legalise drugs and alcohol and it's regulated and we should do the same um, with drugs. But within that then, what do you do? Do you legalise all drugs or do you, or do you mean decriminalise where it's just possession and you make sure that it's taken out of the criminal system? If you look at what's happening in other places, there's successes in Portugal from decriminalisation. There's very little evidence. Peter, you might know more about this. There's very little evidence of what legalisation can do because countries don't do it because you know, you're putting a huge amount of uh, unknowns into the world if you just let a free-for-all happen with, with drugs. <laughs> yeah, it does, does seem, seems to be happening in a lot of states in America to an extent that actually selling it in shops 
and stuff like that. For cannabis, yeah, but yeah. for obviously wider, uh, more hardcore stuff, no. Pete, do you think we should uh, legalise drugs? Uh, I don't know. One of the things that's amazing about this issue to me is I remember first debating it as a college student. I couldn't make up yeah. my mind now. Um, and yeah. I couldn't make up my mind then. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think the Citizens' Assembly is actually great, because for these incredibly kind of multidimensional issues where there are so many factors and you can't just bring your values to it and say, oh, I know what I think about this, because there are so many factors, particularly the interaction with the criminal world and with the economics of that and the huge amount of victims that there are in that. I was about to call it a system. It's not so much a system. It's a mess, obviously. And I think those are really, really important issues that you can only take an evidence-based approach to and you can only go incrementally and watch that evidence closely. And as Sinead says, you know, there isn't a model somewhere else that's highly successful that you can follow. I mean, I've long thought people who are using soft drugs recreationally occasionally, I mean, you know, it's crazy if we're criminalising those people and getting them into the criminal justice system and imposing harsh penalties as if they're sort of, you know, serious criminals. That That's so always then, struck me. Yeah. That's always the, struck me as crazy. But then the question beyond that then is, though, do, do you think cannabis should be more right. widely so, available? So, so, so the society? question is, how far do you go? Yeah. And then the minute you get into that, there's an enormous number of factors. And that's why I like the Citizens' Assembly idea. So I'm going to get a bit of behavioural science in here. There is good evidence that Citizens' Assemblies are effective ways of reaching good judgments. So there's a whole scientific literature on what's called deliberative democracy which is how you get decisions better informed and citizens assemblies are part of that and the evidence suggests they're very successful but one of the things that's important do, about do, it do we feel they're representative yeah well, I mean, you always ask questions about representativeness, whether it's a citizens' assembly, whether it's a survey. People have to be willing to participate. That's obviously going to bias people in a particular direction. You do what you can to make them as representative as you can. But the evidence suggests that citizens' assemblies are effective mechanisms. But one of the points I really want to make about it is it isn't just a question of what does the citizens' assembly recommend after it's looked at a lot of evidence. One of the interesting questions that you've got to get into the public domain is what is it that really changes people's minds? What are the bits of information or evidence that are really telling in terms of the decisions that people ultimately reach and what they support? And I hope that the Citizens' Assembly gets reported in that way and we get feedback on that. I thought the climate one was very successful. I think this one could be successful too. Alice, do you think we should legalise drugs? Well, I think there are two issues here, uh, Brendan, the Citizens' Assembly and drugs. Uh, I work with people who are sleeping on the streets and I first came across the major drug issues when I stayed with the Salvation Army in the red light area in Amsterdam and they were just bringing in methadone then and then we introduced methadone here, which is equally addictive. Do you th but has methadone been successful? Well, it was meant to be a short-term solution to help people to get off drugs and have enough support services there then to enable them to get off drugs. But that never happened. So a lot of people have been on methadone uh, for years. And methadone and heroin in uh, a yes. lot of cases. Um, I have a number. You mentioned the word hysteria. There is a problem when we have attempted to discuss uh, drugs that if you're not you're kind of seen as an old fogey if you're you don't go along with the consensus that we have to decriminalize everything and legalize everything I have an issue too with the Citizens Assembly. How can a hundred people represent a five million people in an island like this? And I think it is crucial that there is an independent uh, chairperson of that group uh, to enable proper debate and discussion. And I think also the Citizens... Yeah, and I think Paul Reid is going to be the chairperson and there's no suggestion... Well, I'm not suggesting, but I think he has been working in the area of health and he has a lot of knowledge and expertise. Yeah. But I just wonder if it should be somebody divorced from health chairing from, and, and somebody from outside the system. Outside maybe. the system, okay. I think. Can we go back to, to drugs, Alice? Because you probably know more about this in a lot of ways than any of us. Right. So... Would you say, for example, that, you know, this notion that if people start taking cannabis, they'll go taking harder drugs. Mm. Is that a pattern that you would have seen down the years with people? Your well, clients? even from what I was listening, Joe Joffe had a very good programme the other day where there was a wide range of discussion. And I think people do say that. I mean, I uh, and certainly a lot of people we would meet, they did start off on, on cannabis. And I think people take drugs because they make them feel good. Yeah. And, and life for an awful lot of the people who are on drugs has been terrible. Uh, so... Um, Maybe what will come out of this, and uh, as Peter said, that there will be a whole range of ideas discussed, and I hope they will, and that they will be reported on. Do you think that the, uh, your clients have the, those of them who who that drugs might be linked in with their situation, right? 
Has the fact that the drugs are illegal made their situation in life worse? Would their situation possibly be better if, if the drugs weren't criminalised? Well, now what I'm going to say will shock your listeners probably. A lot of the people we meet, they would say, let me get into prison that I can have a rest from, you know, outside and the horrors of living on the streets and that. So, um, sorry, Brendan, yeah. what was... So um, if, the, if drugs were legal... Would they have would they have ended up in the situation they're in as readily? Or is there more of a chance that they would have stayed within? Uh, I say this with no judgment. The mainstream of society more. I don't know. I would I would have a huge issue about legalizing drugs. I even have a bit of concern about injecting centres. Uh, I think there are huge issues that we need Why? to have. Uh, I mean, I would certainly find, okay, you can say it's much safer for somebody to take a drug and have an injection in a a supervised setting than sitting in a doorway, as we've all seen, or sitting on the banks of the canal. But are you saying to somebody, it's like saying to uh, an alcoholic, well, there's a bottle of brandy, go off and drink it. So now this may sound off the wall, but I have I have no I'm just mulling all of these issues based on what I see every day over many years. I don't think I think there are no clear answers. And I think that's why discussion like this, even though this is limited, uh, maybe open up people's views to what is going on. Okay, Sean, what do you think? Well, it's, it's as we've seen from the conversation so far, it, it gets broader and broader and broader. And it's very complicated and difficult to answer for that reason. But if you just kind of narrow it down to, say, just cannabis. Yeah. And if we were to go ahead, what would happen? And I think that the evidence from the, the US has been doing this since 2014, state by state. And the evidence suggests there that more people smoke it. So the number of daily smokers. Or, in do, the we, US, or do we just know that more people smoke it? Perhaps that's a question. Maybe people are more willing to answer the surveys. There is a question about that. But I have I have dug around. I think there is a sense that there is more use of it. Okay. The number of daily use, the number of people who use it daily has almost doubled. The number of people who use it occasionally has almost doubled. And the U, like the Citizens Assembly is a good mechanism for like aggregating lots of data. But I think the, around cannabis, there actually isn't great data. There isn't long-term mm-hmm. randomized trials looking at the effects of long-term cannabis use on schizophrenia or all these things you might be worried about. I think, I think any, anyone, anyone who works in the area of psychosis seems to say that cannabis is abno- yeah. an abnormally high factor in possibly not causing psychosis, but I think possibly triggering a latent psychosis in I, people. I think mm-hmm. this is where the um, knowledge of the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation needs to be increased in, in the country because when you're talking about legalisation you are probably talking about and, and you're right Sean there is evidence that it increases the use uh, of whatever drug has been legalised but if you're decriminalising that's still a system you're, 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 the, the drug is still illegal but it means that someone caught in possession of it won't necessarily be put you know sent by the DPP to a trial not necessarily. Not to confuse the matter further Sinead but if you think about it if you you just decriminalise drugs. People are still buying them off criminals. People are still buying, exactly. I don't know, they say so now that the grass and the hash and everything is 10 times stronger than it was in our day. The easiest argument Whereas for... if you legalise it, people can go in and say, I want, you know, one to 10 in terms of how much buzz I want, like, and whatever, that it seems to be more... Exactly, we're like, like a six-person, a five-person citizens' assembly right the, now. That's the, where, the, <laughs> that's where, like, the easiest argument for legalisation is you take it Get away from the drugs, the drugs, the, the drugs uh, criminals. But yeah. th- there's so many more knock-on effects. The same with decriminalisation. It's, you know, you end up... The, I was reading a paper from Australia this morning. The, one of the effects of decriminalisation has been a lot more people have actually entered the criminal system through that like they obviously haven't ended up in prison or anything but there's a, a lot more people with you know drugs things beside their names at the end of it so that was one of the outcomes that they weren't expecting doesn't necessarily mean it's a very why, bad thing I, I don't so, understand why did that so more people are obviously caught up in it instead of there being a lot of leeway given by police. So if, if police find you with what is obviously a personal use cannabis or personal use whatever on them, they would usually just 
let the person go. Whereas now, because of decriminalisation, they they're don't. They're They're actually okay. uh, recording it. But often those people end up going then into rehab. And the evidence is that it works just as well if it's not voluntary as if it was voluntary. So, um, you know, there's yeah. there's all sides to it that you can get into. Yeah. I mean, one, I think, one more point, Sean. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that there's obviously a strong moral case for taking it out of the criminal world. But I think the problem is you can't do that without sort of normalizing it in a kind of a cultural sense. And if you, if you go to the States these days in California, it is kind of jarring as a European, as an Irish person to see like the dispensaries everywhere, the smell of it everywhere. It's a real like but, it's normal. But I'd say there's people rolling their eyes at this panel now being like, but sure it is normalized in culture, you know, just because maybe it's not normalized in this room. Like drug taking is normalized in, in loads of but in, But in the US, culture. like the, the, the perception, the perceived risk of taking cannabis has gone down a lot in the last 10 years. It's 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 not just that it's, uh, you know, that there's a base level. But it's this this change of legalizing it, bringing it into the, the acceptable society and that it had knock on effects and how people view it and mm. how, what to do with it. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we should say that a lot of people will use cannabis in their lives and suffer no ill effects either, like just to, to be. And yeah. other drugs as well. Yes. Can I, can I just quickly say that a quick tot up in my head has suggested that we've introduced between 15 and 16, depending how you count it, arguments in the space of this <laughs> conversation. This is why you need something like a citizen assembly, because nobody can juggle that many factors into decisions. I mean, it's if just you're going such to be, a complex if, if issue. If you're going to be sitting back like a spy counting the number of arguments, <laughs> no, you're not coming here if, again. If, if, if you invite a nerd onto your radio show, that's what he's going to do. Right? OK, well, OK, so nerd, tell me this. Uh, Daniel Murray on the front of the Business Post, you think this is actually quite a, an important story. Government to consider radical new strategies to reduce car use. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think climate policy around the world is accelerating. It's accelerating in Ireland too. It has to. I mean, anyone who looks seriously at the science, including the people who went to the Citizens' Assembly, including myself and my institute, We've clearly got to do much, much more to reduce emissions more quickly. And just before we get into the specifics, can I ask you a broadly behavioural kind of question, which is the obvious question. Is there a sense that we all know and we're being told and told and told and banged over the head with it, but we're just not, we can have this kind of cognitive dissonance or something where we're, we know, but we're willing to not change anything. I, I think it's really complicated. So we know that's definitely true. In Ireland, we're lucky. We have very few climate deniers. My lab has measured that. Other scientists have measured that. We have very few climate deniers. We have the large majority of the population are either very worried or pretty worried about climate change. It now comes in the top three of issues if you spontaneously ask people what the biggest problem the country faces. Climate is right up there. OK, so people have accepted there's a problem. We don't have a problem of climate denial. That's good. The problem, of course, then becomes, well, specifically, what do we do about it? And there, the answer is that you have to do a huge range of things because emissions are caused by so many different aspects of our lifestyle. And the story that's on the front of the business post today is about transport. And our lifestyles are going to have to change if we're going to cut emissions quite radically. And at that point, you face individual decisions about whether people are willing to pedestrianise towns, about whether people are willing to put up with higher car parking charges, about... You know, whether people are going to make the switch and adopt the technology that is electric cars and where do we put all the charging points. And as soon as you get into that, people become much, much more worried because they can see immediately what they're going to lose and the gain is somewhat less obvious. And there's an enormous mm. job that we've got to do to try and persuade people to make these kind of changes. To if become long-termist instead of short-termist, which is probably against human nature in a way, isn't it? Yes, so there is a phenomenon, you're absolutely right, there's a phenomenon in behavioural science called status quo bias, which sounds kind of really obvious in the sense that it is our resistance to change. But it's probably there for some really good reasons. I mean, human beings have evolved a resistance to change because we've spent so much of our lives resisting being controlled by other people who might not have our best interests at heart, but also knowing that when you change anything, there are often unintended consequences. The problem now is we face a policy problem where we've got to change more rapidly as a society than we've ever been asked to change before. So we're going to have to examine our status quo bias. We're going to have to examine how much risk we're willing to take. We're going to have to examine our willingness to take short-term costs. Now, sometimes it's really interesting. Yeah, and people are getting a headache already. Right, but let me tell you something I think is really interesting, right? When Ken Livingstone ran for London mayor, the first London mayor over 20 years ago, Right. His flagship policy was to introduce congestion charging in London. It was opposed by 85% of Londoners. Within 10 years, those same Londoners had voted to increase it. 
once they saw what it had done and what had happened to central London. Okay. Right. Okay. So the problem is you've got to imagine a future yeah. where you've lost some things and you've got to say, could it really genuinely be better? And try to embrace that So in a sense, future. you have to force that future on people to bring them along a bit, possibly, as well. As to a, some yeah, extent, yeah. we might have to force it, but we've certainly got to try to imagine it better and we've got to be open-minded okay. enough to it. Yeah. As a personal yeah. example, I have a car and I live in Dublin city centre and like, I'm, I actually want someone to tell me oh, you cannot own the car anymore. Like it, yeah. it actually doesn't make any sense that my parking is negligible outside our house, like in Dublin city centre, and I can drive it in and out like at will. Like it, and it, it's bad for the city that all of these cars are going around. So I'd actually love to live in a Dublin city centre with no car, but, need, but it makes no need, sense. I'm an absolute hypocrite. Yeah, like yeah, and Alice. Well, I don't drive and I deliberately didn't read that article because uh, and I'm like everyone else uh, around the table. I'm hugely concerned about the future of our planet. One of the problems is we hear about cars. We have cycle lanes. I I did cycle in the city. I wouldn't cycle now. You can't walk on the footpaths. Uh, I walk uh, 40 minutes every morning on our city streets. You can't walk on the footpaths. Uh, Cyclists are on the footpaths. People are on phones walking their dog and you could trip over the lead. Um, I sound terribly negative, but I believe uh, that we have to. So, Alice, do you think you because you you're and public transport, you're probably a bit more in touch with the this streets as well and the city centre and stuff. Should we take the car out of it? Well, of course, it would make a huge difference. I don't drive and I I don't like to see cars congesting the city and the pollution and all of that. But then you have people who have to go to work. You have people who need to come to the capital. We don't have adequate public transport. And we have parts of the country where there is no public transport. So it's a bit like the drug situation. We have to have a balanced discussion around it and we have to cater for everyone. Everything's first complicated, isn't it? <laughs> uh, Sean, you you picked this story as well. Uh, actually, Duncan Stewart was here last week or the week before, but his his central thing is that the 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 car, the idea of individuals having cars, is the, is is a major thing that we have to get over. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm probably coming from a different place to Duncan Stewart. I mean, I think there's two problems with cars. There's the environmental problem. And because this is getting pushed by Eamon Ryan, people frame it in that way. But there's just a logistical problem. There's just a rubbish way of moving people through a city, a dense city. And we've kind of by just by status quo ended up with them. But now our city is getting bigger. We're trying to put, pack more people in there and we're using this incredibly inefficient way of moving around. And, and our answer to it is let's make them electric. Well, and that won't that, that will do nothing for it. But I mean, I think this is a, I, I like this policy because Blanket policies that impact motorists. I mean, if you're living in a rural Ireland, you, you need a car. It's very difficult. There's no alternative. This is a this is a policy which targets cities where cars are acutely bad. And I think ultimately in the city, it's it's zero sum. You have to take away space from cars and give it to other things. Cars have to lose out. But I think the other thing to keep in mind. We're in the city and we look around and there's cars everywhere and they're practical and they're all over the streets. So we kind of naturally assume that they're like extremely important to how our society work operates. Mm. But if you look at the numbers, they, they actually move relatively small numbers of people. It's like only a quarter of journeys into Dublin city centre or by car every every weekday, even though they're... Okay, when you, you consider you, it's their, not, it's not their, their impact on everything. Yeah, yeah. Ev- yeah. Everyone, everyone else is using... Three quarters of people are using a, a minority of the space. And a quarter of people are using the majority of the space, and that needs to just be equalised. Yeah. And we also public transport obviously needs to get better, like, yeah. and especially if you're commuting in from kind of around the suburbs of Dublin, like from North Kildare or um, further afield. Like that, that that's the stuff that needs to improve if if these kind of things are coming in. Just another add, compelling argument I hear made a lot as well is that instead of this mad focus on electric cars, why isn't the focus on electric bikes as the future? For cities, they won't suit everybody, but they would suit. Well, and when cars are gone, they'd suit a lot more people because the 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 fear around cycling is because of like huge buses and cars sharing the same lanes as you. Just to add to that, Colin Murphy has a really good piece in the Sunday Independent about this and about how sometimes your personal uh, wish to want to make a difference is kind of hampered by the idea that it's all kind of pointless and it's all states and corporations anyway. And he just ends it with a quote from University uh, College London professor from a book, How to Save Our Planet. He says, "We have the money, we have the scientists, we." 
have the entrepreneurs and the innovators, but we lack the politics and the policies. So when you hear these kind of policy things and you kind of rail against one or two of them, these are the things that we actually need to feel better as individuals to be able to do something about climate change. Okay, listen, um, very briefly, Sinead, will you just give us the the rundown and the details of the poll that's in the uh, Sunday Indo today, just the state of the parties and... I will indeed. Uh, there's a lot in it. Uh, so the party politics first, Holly Cairns has injected a huge amount of popularity and energy into the Social Democrats, bringing them up five points uh, according to, to, to this 9% poll anyway, according yeah, to the poll in, in the Sunday Independence, the Ireland Thinks poll. Um, it was taken on Friday just to get the data out of the way, a sample of about 1,100 people and the uh, percentage error is to the error, uh, margin of error is 2.9%. Uh, yeah, so the Sindo calls uh, Holly Cairns uh, rise sensational. Okay, um, just give us the order. And parties, then the other parties, Sinn Féin is yeah. down two points to 29%, uh, continuing a downward trend, but keeping them on top, obviously, ahead of Fianna Gael on 21, who are down one, and Fianna Fáil, who are 19, who are up one. And then bringing up the others at the end is a crew of independents and others on 10%, uh, no change. The Green Party on 4%, no change there either. Aintu are on 3%, with Labour both down one, and Solidarity, People for Profit, are down one to 2%. Um, and then in the popularity stakes in terms of the leaders, Cairns has also uh, jumped in there, landing in a second most popular leader in the country with a 43% approval rating. That's behind Michal Martin, who went up one to 45%, but ahead of Mary Lou MacDonald, who also gained one point, leaving her on 41%. Uh, Leo Vracker saw a bump of three points on his rating, bringing him to a healthier 40% above other newcomers in this Ireland Thinks poll. Ivana Batchik in for the first time in this polling on 32%. Padder Tobin, first time in as well on 29% and Eamon Ryan um, as Sean alluded to there isn't the most popular uh, minister bringing in climate change initiatives 22% down one Okay Pete you picked um, the, the kind of Holly Cairns story in the in this on the independent now obviously this is there's an indication in one poll here in the first week that she has given a boost to the social democrats why were you interested in, in yeah i mean there's a numbers guy i'm going to caution because you know any of those changes that are less than about three percentage points could simply be statistical noise but the number surrounding holly cairns is not i mean clearly she's got a bump that's beyond statistical noise and there's a bump there i think what's interesting about it is that the left in irish politics is so fractured and has been fractured for so long that if a degree of coherence comes to it, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how hard or soft the Sinn Féin vote is. Um, and I think for many people in Irish politics who would sit left of centre, who they vote for, where they go, I think is a really open question for the next election. I think there's an awful lot to play for. And what's interesting about this poll is that would confirm that. That would suggest that to me, that there mm. is a lot to play for on that side of the political spectrum, for want of a better expression. So that's why it caught my attention. I think that's quite interesting yeah. to see where it goes. Kate O'Connell uh, was kind of interesting on this here last week, where she was basically saying that... I think what she was saying was that people who don't identify with either of the big two traditional parties, but who are fairly kind of uh, typical centrist, liberally kind of people, that where where do they go is a kind of an open question. At the moment, it would feel like anyone who doesn't go for the two big parties, the majority of them go to Sinn Féin. Are you suggesting, Pete, that uh, Holly Cairns could, or, or, or that the Social Democrats could if they if they got a bit of wind behind them, no good eat into that a little bit. That's the question I'm yeah. asking. I mean, yeah. I, I genuinely don't know, but the poll caught my attention for exactly that reason. And you've just articulated it. It's that if you sit left or centre in Irish politics, wh- where do you go? And clearly some go to the Greens if they've got that environmental chip. Clearly Sinn Féin are far and away the largest party. But there's a, there's a question there about is that partly by default because people don't know where to go, particularly younger people? And can you get some momentum behind another left-wing alternative? I just think it's a very interesting question and I don't know the answer. So the question that is going to develop over the next year or two is who is change? Who is really change, I guess. Yep. OK, we'll take a break. Sinead O'Carroll, Professor Pete Lorne, Al- Alice Leahy and Sean Keyes staying with us. Brendan O'Connor on RTE Radio 1. Welcome back. Sinead O'Carroll, Professor Pete Lorne, Alice Leahy and Sean Keyes are still with us. Uh, i just give you one brief text here from Caroline. You can smell cannabis all over Dublin City. 
that is uh, <laughs> her pithy appraisal of that. Okay, uh, the front of the Sunday Telegraph today is Hancock's plan to frighten the pants off the public is splashed across the front of it. And this is the Telegraph's ongoing, um, they're calling it the lockdown files and it's the most gleeful uh, coverage I, I've ever seen for the last few days. Um, I'm joined now by Enda Brady, London journalist. Good morning, Enda. Good morning, Brendan and panel. And more than 100,000 of Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages uh, leaked and they are, uh, they, they're being uh, doled out day by day. It's been an extraordinary few days, hasn't it? It really has. I mean, we're getting a first, first glimpse, really, of everything that went on behind the scenes. Now, I should point out that these WhatsApps would eventually have made it into the COVID public inquiry, but he made the mistake of writing a book for money with Isabel Oakshoss, the journalist who was publicly and notoriously loud in railing against lockdowns. So that's his first mistake. Hancock writing a book with a journalist who was anti-lockdown and she has betrayed him ultimately. So 100,000 WhatsApp messages handed over to the Daily Telegraph and every single day this week there's been a headline out with them and I would imagine there's probably a few more coming this week ahead. Okay, so we start with yesterday morning scoop was um, people might remember the scandal at the time when images appeared of Matt Hancock embracing uh, his aide Gina Colodangelo. It it was in breach of COVID rules, which was the public interest in it. And now we have an extraordinary about two days of WhatsApp messages. Take take us through uh, the the kind of uh, scramble to manage the crisis. So this is absolutely fascinating. So the picture was taken inside the Department of Health on the 6th of May 2021. So peak COVID, the rules are in place. He is the person who has come up with the rules on news every single day, holding the news conferences and imploring people to abide by the rules that he has put in place. So he takes his special advisor Obviously, they've got wind that the Sun newspaper has this picture. He just knew that there was a picture of him kissing Gina Colodangelo. And I should point out, Hancock at the time, married with three children, married to his wife, Gina Colodangelo, married to her husband, very successful businessman, and they had three children as well. Hancock and Gina Colodangelo went to university together and had known each other a very long time. So she's working for him. Hancock texts the special advisor on WhatsApp, how bad are the pics? And a text comes back from the advisor saying, it's a snog and heavy petting. Hancock then writes, how the beep did anyone photograph that? Crikey, not sure there's much news value in that, and I can't say it's very enjoyable viewing. A text then comes in from Gina Colodangelo, his colleague stroke mistress, and she has written four letters, O-M-F-G. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, then it, it goes on like the 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 time it took um it took him to frame an apology and the advice he had to be given on what he should and shouldn't say in his apology particularly he was getting advice from George Osborne. Yes, so George Osborne was David Cameron's chancellor. He was of the generation of kind of what I would call smart conservatives before the the circus really got taken over by the clowns. So Osborne went on to edit the Evening Standard newspaper in London. He's not a journalist, but he's got a brain and he knows how to manage news. Hancock, he was not completely stupid. He reached out to Osborne and told him the gist of what he was going to say in his apology. And astonishingly, it took George Osborne to write back and tell him that maybe mention your family and how sorry you are. So he hadn't even thought of that. Okay. Yeah. Now, to get on to, there, there are serious aspects to this as well. Tell us about the um, dine out to help out. And there was obviously, a, a Hancock and Suna clearly didn't like each other. Or, or, or there was a rivalry there. Um, but there is a serious uh, issue at the heart of this, which is that they were they, they were covering up for uh, that the they dine out to help out was um, causing problems. So this was a, a scheme that the Johnson government launched in, when was it? It was the August of 2020. And the economy was on its knees. Nobody had been inside a, a bar or a cafe or a restaurant. The hospitality industry was absolutely reeling. So they put in 
the guts of a, a billion euro into this, and the whole idea was that on certain the quiet quieter nights of the week, a family of four or five would get fifty percent off food and drink, and the establishment, the premises, would be able to claim the other fifty percent back from the government. The whole idea was that you know you get Britain moving again, get people out, and and really get hospitality earning money, which it had been starved of for months. Now it's clear that. Hancock was not a fan of this, and yes, there is a rivalry with Rishi Sunak. So Sunak had an extraordinary career trajectory. When I first met him, he was junior housing minister, a junior minister in a portfolio that nobody really cared about, and then he ended up chancellor, and now he's prime minister. So you can see his his trajectory. Hancock, I think, was possibly a bit jealous of that. And what's happened then is he has pointed out that, you know, (laughs) there was suspicion that in certain areas where this scheme was very successful, the virus was going off like a rocket. And it did. September 2020, the virus went off like a rocket. What had happened four weeks previously, they'd launched Eat Out to Help Out. Now, he refers to it as Eat Out to Help the Virus Spread About. That's how he refers to it. That's and then there's also discussion about a, a, a cover-up, because the University of Warwick, serious group of professors, came out with some research papers, uh, and they were basically uh, laughed at. Okay, and listen, there's there's so much more there. So he, he the the strategy was, uh, according to Hancock, frighten the pants off everyone. That was their basic strategy. So the, the people who called it Project Fear are feeling vindicated. He called the teachers union a bunch of absolute arses. Perhaps the funniest thing about it all um, is that Hancock, we, we learn from this, don't we, that Hancock hoped that the COVID crisis would be the making of him and his career and uh, Yes, certainly. There's more messages in there just about how ambitious he was. And I mean, there's 100,000 messages in total. But, like Journalists will be going through this for weeks. Yeah, plenty and more I think, to come. They have a team of well, 20 on it, as well, Brendan, One other yeah. point, you know, that they, they mocked people stuck. This is just to give you an insight into what was going on. People locked up in quarantine hotels. Uh, Hancock wrote, we're giving big families all the sweets and putting pop stars in the box rooms. And the cabinet secretary, Simon Case, writes back, I want to see some of the faces of people coming out of first class into a Premier Inn shoebox. So it just goes on and on. Okay, and the Brady London journalist, thanks for that. Uh, now, guys, um, we, we, we leave that as is. We're obviously having our own um, discussions around it here. Um, Pete, you picked the Hugh O'Connell piece in the Sunday Independent lockdown still taking a toll on our children. I think this is based on, on the at their their poll as well but um did you hear martin cormican on, on this show yesterday you following uh, uh, i did yeah week and everything yeah what do you think i thought it was a very measured and intelligent intervention there were things that were said that i agreed with that i'd possibly even go a little bit further on there were some things that were said that what i would didn't you go further agree on? with so a mixture yeah what would you go further on? okay so I think we need to be really careful about how we go about looking back at what happened and making sure that we get any kind of inquiry and examination of it right. So, you know, I don't want to suggest in any way that some big mistake was made here because I don't believe that, actually. I mean, I'm on the record on the Rockers Committee were the saying school, that... Were the, the school's a big mistake. Uh, well, hold on a second. So I, I'm on the record saying that I thought at the start of the pandemic, the CMO's office did a great job, actually, in pulling expertise together really quickly and getting a fast Irish response together that made a real difference. So I just want to say all of that is true. But I think that for me, one of the things that we really need to look at is how scientific evidence and policy interact. Now, my group and the research that we do, we never make what I would call policy recommendations. As we never put on the end of one of our research reports, this is what we think you should do. Right. And you might say, well, why are you doing the research at all? And the answer there is because... The research has policy implications. You are better off knowing it. It might measure one side of a trade-off for you, or hopefully both sides of a trade-off, so you can make a better and more informed decision. But all policy decisions involve attitudes towards risk and uncertainty and values and priorities. So are you saying that that level of... that that layer was missing? No. So that basically the scientists said stuff and 
the policymakers just went along with it without actually. No, I no, doing I'm, the I'm, no, I'm, I'm not saying it was missing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to get somewhere with this, right? Yeah. The really important thing for the inquiry is say, did we do a really good job at pulling all that expertise together, at measuring the things that we needed to measure, about putting the decisions in front of people in a way where we were best at aggregating that information so that we can make good decisions. But the point I'm trying to get to is this: that the communication between Neffet and the government was in the form of recommendations. And I think there was something really interesting in what Martin Cormican said, actually, where he said that he felt people kind of intimidated was the word he used by the public health. I think it's really, really difficult for a politician, if they're on the end of recommendations from scientists, to then say, well, look, actually, we don't agree with it. And we're not quite going to do it. We're going to do it a bit different because the cost is huge. And you would be intimidated by that because it looks like you are not following the science. Yeah. But if we accept... And, hold and on just risk, a second. And the risk, just to clarify that, though, as Martin Cormican pointed out as well, the risk of not doing what they said if something kicked off was was better than the risk of just going... was, was less of well, a risk than just going along. But, but reasonable people are going to disagree about the trade-offs that Martin Cormican has raised. He's on one side of some of them. You might be on the same side of some of them. You might be on different sides of some of them. The point I'm trying to make is, if the scientists make a recommendation about how to resolve a trade-off, which involves things like values, priorities, willingness to tolerate risk, uncertainty, things that there is not a scientific answer to, then it makes it really, really difficult to challenge that. And I think, myself, as someone who provides evidence for policy, that our job is to elucidate all the things that might happen, to put it in front of people, but the ultimate authorities with the democratic decision makers to look at that information, and they have to decide the extent of the trade-off. But, the, but you and the other uh, medics and science people were all out selling your recommendations. You were all front and centre a lot in the media. I think you'll find, if you look back, that at no point did I really make a recommendation to government. My job is to put evidence in front of government to help them make decisions. And okay. the point I'm making actually is that if the science comes as a recommendation that says scientists say this is what you should do in circumstances where risk, uncertainty, values, priorities also matter... Right, then we're not quite getting it right for me, despite all the good work that's gone into those recommendations, despite okay. all the thought okay. that's gone in. And I think when we look back at it, how the evidence gets in front of the politicians and the policymakers is a really important issue. OK. Schools? So one of the things that we put out throughout, um, actually, was that we thought, looking at the data that we had in terms of people's mental health, in terms of their well-being, that actually the people who were being most shortchanged by the decisions we made were young people. Um, they were actually the hardest hit by the pandemic, despite the fact that they had the lowest risk. And you will have heard me say that to you on this show before. Yeah. I, I certainly, you know, but this is my own values yeah, and priorities yeah. coming back to it. I certainly wanted to see us lift restrictions more quickly on young people. And yes, that would have included schools. So that was one of the areas where I agreed with Martin about the trade-off. But it's really important to understand that that's partly a values thing. It's not a science thing. Right? Uh, of course. And yeah. there's no there's no right and wrong. And, and I think Martin was very clear as well. And I think everybody has been in the discussion that this is not about blaming anybody for anything. Sinead, do you want to come in there? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Hugh O'Connell has a piece in the Sunday Independent on page 16 um, on the back of himself and Jack Horgan Jones wrote a book about the pandemic um, and mostly about the responses. And he actually makes the same point that Peter has made there about what he feels after that research over the year of, of, of writing that book should be the main points of the inquiry. And one of them, he says, is that um, communications piece between Neffet and the politicians who actually had to make the decisions. And did they render the cabinet and the sub-cabinet committees basically ineffective? Basically, they were rubber stamping what had already been decided at Neffet, which Hugh says is also kind of should form part of the inquiry, how it was set up, who was on it um, and how those decisions were made. Not so that there would be a blame and it, the piece is really clear-sighted and really clear-headed. It's not about a blame game but it's about, okay, if we have to do this again and more than likely we will have to do something akin to this again, how do we make sure those structures are put in place quickly as Peter says and that yeah. not only are, are is that end of the chain done well like it was but that on the other side it's done effectively so people can make policy decisions 
decisions based in fact and based in the evidence that they have in front of them without feeling, you know, that they're just rubber stamp- stamping a decision already made. Okay. Alice? Uh, well, none of us expect, expected the pandemic and uh, all the work that was involved in trying to deal with it and that hasn't been easy. But a lot has been said, I'm not a scientist or a researcher, but a lot is, or a politician, but a lot has been said here about communications. I mean, certainly there's communication between the scientists, the medical people, the politicians. But what about the average citizen, the person who was dealing with? How was the message communicated to them in a way that they weren't fearful? And that's why I think and I think it was, shock, it was shocking the, the schools closed and uh, families and their children having to deal with that. But we cannot forget about the elderly people, the older people in nursing homes, um, older people now who are still afraid to go out, are still afraid. Yeah, we saw the CMO had to come yeah. out this week and tell people. Yeah. Is that something you're seeing among and, your and, peers? And, and amongst my na- yes, and I, I think also. Uh, I mean, I didn't. I would. I hated the label cocooner. I went out every morning at seven o'clock to the park, talk to the birds. Uh, so I, and I'm still talking to the birds, and um, that was important. But now, how people have a great distrust of of what this stuff they were hearing on television every night. It was on television and on the radio, and now they're saying how do we believe these very same people who are now telling us to get out and walk and do the things we like doing so I think there needs to be some kind of movement or getting together of people who um, to kind of this needs to be to be debated like so much of what you're doing on the other issues today and you did see yeah, on the paper I think, I think that conversation has, has started yeah um, Sean briefly yeah, I mean I think sometimes politicians feel like they have to um, you know, devolve power to another group group of experts in, in specific areas. NEFIT was obviously one example, but it happens other, in other places. Central banks are another example. And I think if you're going to do that, it's very important that that group who's in, given, given that power has the right mandate because they will go ahead and they will just work on their thing uh, to the exclusion of all other priorities. And yeah. so in the case of central banking, it might be that they were overemphasised inflation. In the case of NEFIT, it might have been that they overemphasised risk and safety over other considerations. Yeah. Okay. The other thing we do... Briefly, Sinead, because there's time is passing. I, I just think there's a consensus in. that, you know, everyone was either for or against lockdown, whereas actually the reality, if you look, like Peter said, if you look back at the debates and if you look back at what people are actually writing and saying at the time, people were much more nuanced and usually it was about the things that they wanted to do or the th- things that they had experience of. There was very few people who were like absolutely shut down, absolutely everything and there was very few people who were like free for all. People did generally have nuances and the skills debate was the, the biggest one. People wanted their kids in school but also were afraid of what might happen if they were in school. So if you go back to the time, even in 2021, like this is, it's impossible to have this debate without hindsight. Another thing that's fierce complicated. (laughs) Alice, what isn't as complicated in a way is that the cost of living, and you've picked a few uh, stories today, but why don't you tell us about uh, the Nicola Byrne story in the Mail on Sunday? I never thought we'd be struggling just to stay warm. Well, I, I, I think Nicola captured it very well. And she spoke about a 76-year-old woman, Dolores Boylan, who knew all about the weather cold. And she said, like most of, of us, her husband made plans to try and beat the sky-high energy bills that have shocked many householders over the past six months. Now, this was a woman who worked all her life. Her husband worked. And she worked in uh, Woolworths and Henry Street and then in Juries in Ballsbridge until she retired. And they're now, and she's now surviving on a state pension. And her husband, uh, who is also in his 70s, he's a non-contributory, non-contributory pension. And they are, they are afraid, really, to... They just... How can they stay warm? And the couple have two children, they have five grandchildren, and she said she doesn't want to be complaining because at least they have each other and they're happy. She goes to ballroom dancing when she's feeling well. She goes to Friends of the Elderly on a Wednesday. But she said, I never thought we'd be like this in our old age, struggling to keep warm. 
do, do, is there a lot of hardship out there among older people? Do you I think? think there is a lot of hidden hardship because a lot yeah. of people uh, l- like that 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 lovely couple, um, like Dolores and her husband. Uh, they would be too proud to even say they're keeping that the they're show need. on the road. They're like. keeping the show on the road, and it's kind of the hidden poverty. Uh, and people who, who won't go maybe to the Vincent de Paul Society or they won't ask for help even from their families. And many of them are proud, independent people who have worked hard in difficult times. Yeah. And I think we can't forget about them. And yeah. somehow the fear. And so, and so what they'll do, what they'll do is turn down the heat. That's they, actually what they'll do. Yeah. yeah. And if they don't turn on the heat and if they're afraid to go out. Uh, what will happen? There will be okay. all kinds of other problems. All right, we'll take a quick break. Uh, Sinead O'Carroll, Professor Pete Lunn, Alice Leahy and Sean Key staying with us. Welcome back, Sinead O'Carroll, Professor Pete Lunn, Alice Leahy and Sean Key still with us. Sean, um, you picked two stories here from the Sunday Times. One is uh, a John Mooney story, Access All Areas, and this is about the, this whole conversation that's been going on around uh, Russians and potential spying. And the other is uh, Shan Boyle, Why China Doesn't Let Its Kids Loose on TikTok. And you think that there's a, an underlying overarching theme here? Yes, well, uh, towards the end of the, the, the TikTok piece, there's a sort of a very lead that in the EU, in the United States, Canada, Germany, the EU Commission, all of these places are moving to ban TikTok from for, for their for their employees because for security purposes. And Ireland is, I think that it it just like with the Russian story and the access to Lens your house. I think within Ireland we have uh, a sort of a, an, an an attitude that you know. Everybody likes us. Why would anyone harm us? Um, why would we worry about uh, a TikTok headquarters being here or Chinese cameras in Leinster House or Russian citizens or, or sorry, uh, Russian agents potentially having access to Leinster House? And I think it's all of a piece. There's no layer in Ireland that worries about security. OK. I'm all stumped at that. Did, Obviously, no, TikTok is a bit, you know, it's a legitimate company and legitimate app that's used everywhere. And we'll, we'll put all those caveats in. But basically, we don't, so we don't have like spooks in Ireland as such or a, a massive intelligence network. Well, right? we, we don't have anybody who's telling this, telling uh, our, our, our civil servants in our state that maybe it's it maybe it's uh, a risk factor to have TikTok installed in your phones. Mm. And I think that so that there's, there's, there's kind of two pieces with TikTok. There's you know, what it might glean in terms of gathering data about sensitive people, which is sort of what we're talking about here. But there's also the bigger piece of, you know, this divide, this this thing which has addicted I think, the world. Yeah, I think it's controlled by the Chinese. I state. think people are a bit jaded around the data question. I think but like for people who've been on the internet for so long, like, you know, they get those messages like your data has been compromised. Most people get jaded by that and just ignore it. Like that's what the data says. Like people don't change their passwords when they're told to. But the addicted, the, the TikTok addiction, I think, is the is the one where people actually will start to be a bit fearful, especially around their kids. Um, that piece about China in the Sunday Times has a quote from Imran Ahmed of the Centre for Countering Digital Intelligence. Um, and he told the BBC last week to uh, bring our conversation full circle. It is the crack cocaine of algorithms, the most addictive, the most dangerous and the one that needs to be dealt with most urgently. Yeah. And and the Chinese government does have a golden share in in. TikTok, doesn't it? And essentially any large corporation you're dealing with in China, people do say you just assume that you're dealing with the Chinese Communist Party and the government as well. Pete. Yeah, I just want to make a quick point to back up what Sean said. It's an economic point, actually. I mean, I think it's true that in Ireland we've felt for a long time kind of insulated from a lot of international espionage on the grounds. Well, why would anybody bother having a go at us, you know, why, why would they? We're, we're, we're friendly, we're small, you know, all of those things. The thing, one of the things that, from an economic point of view is really interesting about online espionage um, is the marginal cost of doing it is so small. So actually destabilising democracy in Ireland now is a really, really cheap thing for somebody to have a go at doing. It doesn't require much investment at all. And I think that okay. one, of the, one of the things about that online espionage is, is that, that it's just made it so much easier for somebody who might not previously wanted to bother to say, well, actually, maybe we will start bothering interfering here because we can do it almost at zero marginal cost because we're doing it in other places. And I think there is a risk there that we need to actually think about. Okay, so the barriers to entry 
around destabilizing a country <clears throat> are actually gone at this stage. Technology has has revolutionized. Yes, the, m- mucking the about sector. in other people's mm. politics has become much cheaper and easier, and that means that yeah, we're potentially more of a target than we used to be. Yeah. That, and, th- and when that people talked very... about Russia in that frame a few years ago, be, people who talked about misinformation, disinformation, the Russians, they were told like to kind of you know stop moaning. Basically, yeah. it was fine, but look what happens. Yeah, and now we know it all. Yeah. Okay, uh, Colette and Cork. A very true and simple text that we must never forget. Lockdown was all about not overwhelming the health service. And we, we it's easy to forget that, but that was a, a big factor there at the time. OK, thanks to my panel for a very lively hour there. Sinead O'Carroll, editor at thejournal.ie. Professor Pete Lone, a behavioural economist at the ESRI. Alice Leahy, director of services at the Alice Leahy Trust. And Sean Keyes, financial correspondent at The Currency. 